Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. When Americans think of the day that World War II ended in Europe, they often picture the sailor kissing a girl in Times Square and, and everyone celebrating. But in Europe, the end of the war brought chaos and uninterrupted suffering. Over a million people found themselves stranded in Germany with no home to return to. Death camp survivors, forced laborers, and Nazi collaborators all lived for years in displaced persons camps as the humanitarian crisis became overwhelmed by foreign policy goals and Cold War calculations. Historian and biographer David Nassau has written a new book about how those million individuals came to be in Germany, how they survived in DP camps, and how they were finally resettled throughout the world in the last million Europe's displaced persons from World War to Cold War, which is published by Penguin Press. And I'm very pleased that it has brought David Nassau to our show today. Welcome. Delighted to be here. You've written biographies of three prominent American businessmen. Uh, well, uh, 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 William Randolph Hearst, Andrew Carnegie, and Joseph Kennedy. What led you to tackle this very different subject? I think it's the the historian in me that that wants to set the record straight, wants to fill in the gaps, wants to erase the errors, and wants to give people with no voice a voice. You know, I had always, as a, you know, an American and a historian, I had always bought into the story that when the good war, as Studs Terkel referred to it, was over, uh, when the combat ceased in Europe, and then a little while later in Japan, the sun came out to shine, everybody smiled and laughed, the suffering was over. And while that Wait. may have been in the case in the United States, it was certainly not the case in Europe. Were you able World, to access documents and, and archives that haven't been available to earlier historians? Yeah, um, they, they could have been available. They, they were sitting there. Um, but nobody there knew were, to look. Well, you know, the, the, the story of, of World War II is often told as a, as a triumphant story. We won. We beat the Nazis. Uh, Hitler committed suicide. Um, and, and that's the story that's been told. And, you know, in, in recent years, the Tom Brokaw book, uh, The Greatest Generation, and the Tom Hanks movies uh, have made it appear, have, have only accentuated that vision of, of the war. And I wanted to look at something at, at a different side, at a different moment. I also was, wanted to understand why. You know, through my life, I have met and read about Holocaust survivors who came to the United States. And it dawned on me after years, I should have gotten it earlier, that those who arrived in the United States didn't get here until 1950, 1951. So I, I, I tried to figure out in this book what happened to them. Where were those missing five years from the end of the war to the moment where they were resettled in the United States and elsewhere in the world? So I so, wanted to put those two stories together. 
So when Allied troops arrived in Germany in the spring of 1945, what did they find? Uh, weren't there millions of non-Germans there? There were, when the war was over, when the Allied troops arrived, there were 8 to 10 million non-Germans in Germany. There were millions of prisoners of war, slave laborers, forced laborers, concentration camp victims, political prisoners from all over Europe. Within weeks after the end of the war, most of them returned to their homes. They returned to France, to Italy, to England, to the Soviet Union. But left behind were a million refugees, a million foreigners, who either had no homes to return to, like the Jews, or for a variety of reasons, feared returning to their homes. This is the last million, and they would title. remain. Yeah, and they would remain in in uh, Germany with a smaller number in Italy and Austria um, for the next three to five years. I would have assumed that the last million were all Jews, but weren't Jews only a uh, a percent, a small percentage of the group? Yeah, yeah, they they were not a large percentage of the group. When when the war was over, um, Hitler and the Nazis, as the war comes to an end, they do not want the world to know about the atrocities that have been committed against the Jews. And they go through all the camps in Poland, Auschwitz, Birkenau, all of them. They dig up the corpses and they bury them. They dismantle as much as they can before the Red Army arrives. They take the survivors, the Jewish survivors from these camps, and they death march them back into Germany, not to save their lives, but to work them to death. Instead of gassing them, they're going to be worked to death in underground mines and armament factories that Hitler hopes will produce a secret weapon. When the war is over, more than half of those who had been death marched back into Germany are dead. There are only 30 to 50,000 Jewish survivors of the camps. In the years to come, those Jews are joined by other survivors, including maybe 150 to 200,000 Polish Jews who had survived the Nazi invasion because they had escaped into the Soviet Union and had spent the war in hard labor in Asiatic portions of the Soviet Union. Uh, and during the war, recruiters encouraged Poles and Ukrainians to come to Germany to work as guest laborers. Yeah, and when did it, it become exactly. clear that those Poles and Ukrainians would be treated not as guest workers, but as slave laborers? Yeah. The, the Germans understood that, uh, Hitler understood right from the very beginning. He had hoped that the war was going to be over within a matter of weeks. You know, the Russians, the Soviets would surrender, the British would surrender, make a deal, the war would be over. When that didn't happen, the Nazi hierarchy understood that the only way to keep the war going was to import into Germany millions of workers to take the place of the soldiers who were on the front. Without those millions of guest workers, they were called in the beginning, you know, the factories would cease to work and the you know, farms would not be harvested. So 
in the beginning, they told Polish and Ukrainian youth, you know, come to Germany. It's a great future. Six um, months. You'll be well paid. Yeah, come for six months only. If you don't like it, go home. Um, it quickly became apparent that these were just another species of lies that the Nazis told. And those guest workers were not guest workers. They were slave laborers. There were, you know, they had to wear patches uh, saying OST for East uh, to establish their difference from Germans. They weren't allowed to eat in restaurants. They weren't allowed to go to churches. They were put under the strictest guard, whether they worked on farms or in factories. When it became apparent that this was no paradise for guest workers, the Germans began literally kidnapping hundreds of thousands of young people and shipping them to the Soviet Union. When the war was over, there were millions of Poles and Ukrainians still in Germany. They were freed now, but, but they, they were, were afraid, afraid to, go home. to go home. They were afraid to go home, yeah. Why? They were afraid to go home for a variety of reasons. First, the anti-communist propaganda that had been spread from Great Britain into Germany when the war was over and into the camps where these Polish guest workers were, you know, were rescued and fed, was such that they were told, and these are young people, these are young, uneducated uh, agricultural workers for the most part. They Hitler were told, called them subhuman workers. Hitler called them subhumans, absolutely. And they were told, they, they received all this propaganda, and they believed it, that the Soviets had created a terror camp out of Poland. And if they returned, it would be like returning to a prison camp in Poland. And, and they didn't know what to do. They, they thought they would just wait it out, see what happened. Um, and they also knew that Poland had been destroyed, that their family farms had been you know, wiped out, that millions of Poles were dead, that thousands and thousands of square miles had been taken over by the Soviets. And what remained of Poland was now under Soviet domination. So they didn't want to go home. There were also Latvians and Estonians and Ukrainians who didn't oh. want to go home, but for a different reason. Yeah, they had uh, were accused of collaborating with the Germans in one way or another. So when it became clear that the Germans were going to be defeated, were they afraid that they would be punished by the Russians? They knew damn well they were going to be punished. They knew that they were going to be punished for collaborating in any which way with the German uh, occupiers. Now, some of them, some of them should have been punished and should have been punished severely. There were thousands of young men who joined the Waffen-SS, the Latvian Legion, and the Ukrainian Galician Legion, and the Estonian Legion, and they fought alongside the Nazis, and they should have been punished. There were thousands of auxiliary policemen who helped the Germans murder and massacre the, Jews, the Jews in Latvia and Lithuania and Estonia and the Ukraine. And they should have been punished when the Red Army returned. But there were others 
who were, you know, whose, whose collaboration was more innocent. If you worked in a post office or if you worked in the sewer uh, office in Latvia and the Germans took over, you had to either leave your job and starve or work with the German occupiers. And these people, too, were afraid. So as the war comes to an end in 1944 1945, tens of thousands of Latvians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Estonians, and some Ukrainians march back into Germany where they feel they're going to be safe no matter what happens from the Red Army. Oops. Have we lost you? No, I'm still here. Oh, well, I was wondering about, you, you mentioned the Boffin SS. Uh, they, the, the ones who had joined the Boffin SS couldn't just uh, st uh, take off their uniforms and create false names because they had Boffin SS tattoos in their armpits. Yeah. So easy to yeah. spot them. Yeah. The, one, one of the, there, there are two, God, there, there are two moments in my research where I gasped in disbelief. One, when I realized, and we can talk about this later, that the Americans were not going to give refuge to any of the Holocaust survivors. And two, when I realized that the Americans and the English and the Australians and the Canadians were more than willing to allow Nazi collaborators into their countries. Um, there, there's a story I tell in the book that, you know, still astounds me. Um, the British had, the UK had a real labor shortage when the war was over for a variety of reasons. Uh, they had lost lots of soldiers and many more young Brits had gone to the, wanted to get out of Europe altogether. They'd gone to Australia and Canada. So there was a real labor shortage. The British begin to send labor recruiters into the displaced persons camps and to seek out people who they want to resettle in Great Britain to alleviate the labor shortage. And the ones they choose are the Latvians. The Latvians are the first choice. And the Lithuanians and the Ukrainians are the second and third choice and the Poles the fourth choice. Why do they want the Latvians? Because the Latvians had suffered least. They had come into the displaced persons camps at the end of the war. Uh, they had lived under the German occupation. They had moved into Germany with their families. Uh, they were strong. They were healthy. And tens of thousands of them were also collaborators. So they're put to work in the mines in England where there was a shortage, many of these Latvians. And when the British miners see the Waffen-SS tattoos, they go out on strike immediately. They close down coal production. So what, is the, what did the British do? What did the Home Office and the Labor Office do? They have a quick meeting, and they agree that from now on, they're going to continue to import Waffen-SS legionnaires into Great Britain, but they're going to make sure they work in places where they never have to take off their shirts so mm -hmm. no one will see their tattoos. My guest on Let It Open at Large today is David Nassau, N-A-S-A-W. His latest book, The Last Million Europe's Displaced Persons, 
from World War II to Cold War, published by Penguin Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and, and uh, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm sorry I interrupted you. Want to finish your thought? No, that's, that's okay. What, okay. What I was saying, it is just shameless that the British were willing to let in uh, the often SS men from Lithuania and Latvia and the Ukraine. But didn't we also bring in, yeah, we brought in Werner von Braun and, and others. Uh, was that simply a matter of wanting to uh, learn what the, the Nazis had developed in, in, in uh, missile technology? Uh, if only. I think uh -huh. what, happens, what happens is that World War quickly gives way to Cold War. And almost immediately... After the Nazis are defeated, the American government and the military and the State Department and the CIA begin planning for the next war. They begin planning for a Cold War that might become a hot war, World War III. So suddenly, a Nazi collaborator, a Nazi collaborator who now repositions himself as an anti-communist, as an anti-Soviet, and says, I joined the Nazis only because I hated the Soviets and wanted to fight against them. These people become objects that the, the Americans want. They, they want them, and they recruit them. George Kennan sets up an office within the State Department that is eventually becomes part of the CIA, and they go after exiles, refugees in the camps that they know have been collaborators, but who have a fervent desire to fight communists. Look, the, the mood in this country in 1946, 1947, 1948 is Americans don't want to fight another war. And a lot of the soldiers who've been in Europe know that the war was won only because the Soviets, the Red Army, fought on our side. And they, they've been our friends. Nobody thinks that Stalin is George Washington, you know, or, or a great guy. But the American people don't want to go to war with the Soviets. We've been through a war. So the government, the State Department, the White House, they have to, as Senator Vandenberg tells Truman, we got to stiffen the spine of the American people, get them ready for another war. And what better way to do that than to bring in all these collaborators who can tell stories about Soviet brutality and say, we went to war against the Soviets because they were worse than the Nazis. But uh, at the same time that the United States was urging other countries to accept refugees for resettlement, we were one of the last countries to do so. I'm not talking about Werner von Braun and those people. Why did it take until 1948, three years after the end of the war, for the U.S. Congress to even pass its first displaced persons law? And wasn't that law written to restrict or prohibit visas for 90% of the Jews? Are you there? Okay, look like I'll try to get them back. Okay, we are having a little difficulty at times with this connection, uh, but I'm talking to David Nassau, who's uh, the author of uh, 
the Patriarch, uh, which was selected by the New York Times as one of the best books of the year and a 2013 Pulitzer Prize finalist in biography. Um, Andrew Carnegie, a New York Times notable book of that year, and also a book about um, uh, Kennedy. Uh, so, uh, well, anyway, uh, we're talking about his book, The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War, which is published by Penguin Press. And I hope that- um, Okay, Leonard, he's back. I hope that uh, Professor Nassau is back. You're back? I'm back. I'm back. Okay, so, so I, I was asking you about uh, why did it take three years after the end of the war for the U.S. Congress to pass its first Displaced Persons Act, uh, and, and, and the law was written to restrict or prohibit visas for 90% of the Jews. Uh, the Congress was controlled by Republicans. Uh, didn't they claim that the restrictions weren't anti-Semitic, but a matter of national security? Why national security? Okay, one of the oldest, you know, anti-Semitism, is composed of all sorts of myths and lies and falsehoods against Jews. And one of them that dates back to the 1920s and was and the Pope was that Jews were responsible for the Bolshevik Revolution. And Jews are anarchists, Jews are socialists, and Jews are communists. And you can't let them into your country. This myth was exacerbated and exaggerated by Hitler. And then it was picked up by Southern Democrats and by Midwestern Republicans who claimed that all the Jews were either Polish Jews who had been liberated by the Red Army, or they were Polish Jews who had spent the war in the Soviet Union, and you couldn't trust them. They were Bolsheviks. They were either hiding their sentiments or they were undercover. And we couldn't let them into this country because they were subversives and they were going to turn the country upside down and they were spies. Now, it's but not. It could, it could get even worse. General George Patton wrote in his diary about those who, quote, believe that the displaced person is a human being, which he is not. And this applies particularly to the Jews who are lower than animals. Yeah. That, that is, is anti-Semitic. I didn't Patton know that about a, George Patton. No, Patton is, a, is an absolute disgrace. I mean, his diaries, thank God, his diaries were, were found and kept and published. And you see what a monster, an anti-Semitic monster this man is. Um, you know, when, when Eisenhower attempts to do something to make life livable for the Jews in the, in the camps... Patton opposes him every step of the way. And eventually, one of the reasons why Eisenhower gets rid of Patton is that Patton doesn't follow orders. Um, so that's one form of anti-Semitism. Now, when the war is over because of the Nazi ideology, Patton can write that in his diary and can mutter these things uh, to his officers. You know, but He's not going to go public and say this. Um, the same with the anti-Semitic senators and congressmen and politicians and individuals in the United States when the war is over. They've got to find a new way to frame their anti-Semitism. And they do it by talking about the Judeo-Bolshevik conspiracy. 
uh, and they do it effectively. But they, some Polish Jews were able to survive the war by crossing into the Soviet Union. Uh, didn't the, uh, the the Russians send them to the Asiatic parts of, of the Soviet yeah. Union, where they where they worked throughout the war? The, the, the war uh, was over. How many yeah. uh, Jews did the uh, Soviets send back to Poland? Soviets, uh, when the war was over, the Soviets said, because the Soviets didn't want the Jews either, um, Stalin provided trains to bring all the Soviet Jews or everyone, oh, I'm see all the Polish Jews or everyone who wanted to go back to Poland to provide them with transportation back to Poland. There are about 200 to 250,000 Polish Jews. You know, 90% of the Polish Jews who survived the war survive it only because they're in the Soviet Union. And but of course, they, they, they had to face anti-Semitism back home as well. Well, they, they come back. You're absolutely right. I mean, they, they come back, these, these poor people. They've spent four or five years in Asiatic Soviet Union uh, where the conditions are absolutely dreadful, where they're working, you know, 12 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, they've finally come back home to Poland. And what do they find? They find a resurgence and exacerbation of the anti-Semitism that had always been there. And they're told, and I've read these stories, one after the other, they go back to their old apartments or their farms or their businesses, and they're told by the Poles who have taken over their apartments and their houses and their farms, they're told, well, we thought you were dead. There's no place for you anymore in Poland. Poland is for the Poles now. We don't want you here. And the Jews who try to stay there meet not only with verbal abuse, but with terror, with violence. There so are many pogroms. of them wound up going to the American zone of Germany uh, to, uh, to, be, to live in displaced persons camps? Yeah. How bizarre is this? How that would have been terrible. Earth. What were the displaced, uh, the DP camps like? Who who had set them up, and, and where were they located? Yeah, they, they were located throughout Germany, mostly in Bavaria. They were in former army barracks. Uh, the American army provided the food in the American sector. The British army provided the food in the British sector. And the camps were administered on a day-to-day -day basis by a United Nations organization that Roosevelt had been instrumental in setting up in 1943. Before there was the United Nations, There's there was the United Nations. Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, and, and it ran the camps. Uh, the camps were, I mean, they, they looked like, uh, you know, they looked like army barracks. There were, could, um, were they divided by nationality? Could a Polish Jew be living next to a Polish Nazi collaborator? In the beginning, absolutely. In the first months after the war, the American army and the United Nations refused to recognize the, that the Jews had suffered in a way different from all the other victims of the war. And they refused to recognize the Jews as a people. Instead, they recognized Polish Jews as Poles, and they stuck them in camps with Poles. And in many instances, 
there were these frightening confrontations between Jews and former camp guards, uh, between Jews and people whose families had taken away everything the Jews had owned back in Poland or in Lithuania. It was only in July of 1945 when Truman sent an emissary to look at what was going on in the camps. And that emissary, uh, a law school dean from Pennsylvania, came back and he, he wrote a report and he said to Truman, we are treating the Jews in the same way that the Nazis did. We're putting them in camps behind barbed wire. The only difference is we're not exterminating them. And it was at that point that Truman got in touch with Eisenhower and say, said, do something. This is intolerable. So Eisenhower separated out the Jews, gave them their own camps, provided them with extra rations, allowed in philanthropic and charity organizations, uh, provided more doctors, and made life livable, or as livable as it could be, for the Jewish survivors in camps in Germany. And it's into those camps that the Polish Jews who come back from the Soviet Union, um, they cross borders in the dead of night. They walk for hundreds of miles across, across Poland into Czechoslovakia and Austria and then into Germany because the only place they can find safety and security is back in Germany, in camps that are watched over by the American Army and the United Nations. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. So I'd like to take just a minute to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 516-620-3602 to help keep the show coming to you throughout the week. Again, the number is 516-620-3602, or you can go to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. And I am delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of London Lopate at Large right now will receive a free copy of David Nassau's book, the one we've been discussing, The Last Million Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War. But at whatever level you are able to show your support for this show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step to keep the show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to give to wbai.org on the web. And please help keep independent 100% listener-funded radio alive on the New York City radio dial. And don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large from all of us here. Thank you very much, all of you who do come through. Um, my guest 
is David Nassau, and his uh, latest book is The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War, published by Penguin Press. Wasn't Germany in a state of chaos as well? There were uh, uh, basic things weren't available, uh, such as, uh, well, there was nobody, um, there were no police, there were no, there was no mail delivery, there was no garbage pickup. Uh, what else? It was all because no, uh, there was nobody really running the place. No, that when the when Hitler committed suicide and the Nazi party dissolved and the soldiers and the Nazi officials took off their uniforms and and went into hiding the result was total total anarchy if anarchy is the absence of government uh that's exactly what happened in Germany worse than that um uh, and and I don't want to evoke any false sympathy for those who had carried on world war 2 um the Allied bombing, the Russians from one direction, the British, the Canadians, the Americans, had devastated large parts of Germany. Uh, most of Germany was in rubble. Uh, if Hitler had surrendered earlier, he would have saved the German people from the final humiliation and outrage. But when the Americans and the British came in, the Canadians came in, uh, there was very little Germany left. Most thousands upon thousands of people were homeless, were starving. There were no medical supplies. There was no garbage pickup. There was no food in the shops. Uh, the lucky ones were those who had relatives who lived on farms and could somehow get fresh food from them. The Americans and the British had to literally take over in their occupation the civil society functions that a government usually performs. And in addition to this, the, I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine what goes on in Europe after the war. The Czechs and the Hungarians and the Poles and the Yugoslavs immediately begin to evict the Germans who had lived among them, some for generations, and they send them back into Germany. So there's not only the last million, but there are millions of Germans who have been evicted from their homes outside of Germany who were sent back into Germany. And again, there's a lack of shelter, a lack of food. It is, you know, it is chaos. And it is in this setting that the displaced persons will suffer for another three to five years after the war is over because no nation on earth is willing to accept them. Now, that begins to change in 1947-1948. Is that because they're in bad shape, whereas the, uh, some of the others who had been, been dis well, the Jews anyway were in bad shape, the, the ones who were in bad shape um, were the ones who were least likely to be uh, encouraged to emigrate? Yeah, exactly. And and again, there, there is this overwhelming, you know, one would have hoped that after Hitler and after the German ideology, anti-Semitism in the world would have lessened. But the opposite was the case. I mean, what, the, what Hitler had done was sort of legitimize anti-Semitism. Uh, 
throughout the you know throughout the world throughout the and we're, world, we're seeing manifestations the, of it even today absolutely. in this country absolutely i mean what 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 hitler does you know we we, we learned and we've seen this you know, recently, that if a lie is told often enough and vehemently enough and enthusiastically enough, it is difficult to dislodge. And the lies about the Jews that Hitler spread were difficult to dislodge after he was defeated. So what happens in, in 1947, 1948, the countries of the world begin to look upon the displaced persons as not simply a problem but a solution to their labor shortages. And every country on earth, with the exception of the Americans, sends send labor delegations to the displaced persons camps to pick and choose the people they need to work in their mines, in their forests, in their factories, on their farms. Australia especially. Excuse me? Australia especially. Absolutely. Australia. They resettle more refugees than any other nation. Australia feels, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's a good point. The Australians believe that they don't have a large enough population to sustain, to, to maintain their prosperity and their independence should another world war come. And they have to beef up their population. In the beginning, they changed slightly. The, the immigration policy had always been, you know, Anglo-Saxons only. And the Australians realized they can't do that anymore. The Brazilians, the Argentinians, the Canadians, and the nations of Western Europe have to bring in new labor sources, and they get those in the displaced persons camps. But what they don't want, what they will not accept for resettlement, um, any of the Jews, they accept the Latvians, the, the Estonians, the Poles, the Yugoslavs, everybody but the Jews. And they don't accept the Jews, number one, because of this inbred anti-Semitism, because of this sense that the Jews are clannish, that they have, will have no allegiance to their new nation, that they're, they're tricky, they're sneaky, and that they're probably Bolsheviks. So in nation after nation, the recruiting bodies that come to the displaced persons camps, they round up the Latvians, and they round up the Estonians, and they give them free passage to Brazil and Australia and Argentina and every place else, and the Jews are left behind. Well, the Jews were actually denied uh, entry to the United States during the war, despite the fact that we knew uh, what was going on. They were being put in concentration camps. Uh, we had pretty uh, good information about the Holocaust. We were turning away people like the, the movie The Ship of Fools. Um, but it went even further. I was surprised to learn that we allowed Holocaust survivors to remain in German camps for three to five years after the war ended. Uh, so when we call it the good war, are we being ironic? Yeah. No, you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. We, we all know, or educated people know, 
that Roosevelt and the State Department did not reach out to save Jewish lives in the late 1930s or during the war itself. And as a result, six million died. Now, there are raging controversies and debates among historians as to whether Roosevelt could have done anything. Roosevelt said the only way to save Jews is to win the war. Others said, no, there are other things you can do. You can bomb the uh, railroad tracks leading from Hungary to Auschwitz and save the Hungarian Jews. Um, But that put that debate aside. When the war is over, the assumption has been that America opened its doors to the Holocaust survivors, welcomed them, gave them a place of refuge. At least that was the assumption that I had lived with until I began to research on this book. And I discovered, you know, to my disgust, almost to my horror, that the Americans did not allow any of these Holocaust survivors in to the United States until 1949-1950. But at the same time that the United States wasn't allowing Jews to come here, wasn't Truman urging the British to allow Jews to emigrate to Palestine, which the British then held a mandate over? The British refused. The British refused. And, And, you know, Truman, beginning in 1945, Truman is a smart politician, and Truman knows that he's got a lot of things he's got to do with a with a Congress that's not going to be on his side, with a Republican Congress. And one of the risks he's not going to take is to go all out to try to get Jewish refugees into the United States. He's just not going to do it, and, he, and because he knows he's going to lose. He doesn't have the capital to do that. So instead, he goes to Churchill at Potsdam when the war is over. And he says to Churchill, and then when Churchill is recalled because he's lost the election and replaced by the Labor Party in Clement Attlee, Truman goes to Clement Attlee, and he says the same things. He says, look, you've got to open the gates of Palestine to the Jewish displaced persons. He said, and look, you don't have to worry anymore about millions of Jews overwhelming the Middle East because six million have died. We're not talking about millions anymore. We're talking about a couple of hundred thousand. But wasn't Britain's highest priority to build support with the Arab nations close to Palestine because they were competing with the Soviets for the the energy reserves in the Middle East? Absolutely. Absolutely. You make a you make a very good point. Well, I got um, it from your book. British. <laughs> well, thank you. It's still a good point. <laughs> the. Um, the British have lost their empire. They know they're on the way to being a second or third or fourth-rate power. Um, they, they've lost India. You know, they lost Ireland. Um, but they want to hold on to their ties in the Middle East, and they want to hold on to their oil, and they want to hold on to their companies ties to Middle Eastern oil, and it is, you know, it's just common sense for them to sacrifice all humanitarian concerns for the Jews, to protect their interests with the Arabs in the Middle East, and they do that. 
right up until the end. Well, so when Truman recognized the state of Israel in May 1948, was it for humanitarian reasons or mainly to get the last Jews out of Germany? I think, and I, and I make this point in my, in my book, um, which is, again, another finding that comes out of my research. Truman understands in 1948 that he's got to create a West Germany that's going to be a bulwark in NATO and in the Marshall Plan support, that Europe is going to be divided between East and West, and it's vital that Germany become part of the West. But so what happened to, to the create, Jews who were there? Did they tend to stay in, the West, in West Germany or in East yeah, Germany? By this time, most of them are in West Germany. Most of them had moved into West Germany. And Truman understands that he cannot allow the German people sovereignty when there are a quarter million Jews stuck in camps on German soil. How can he possibly turn these Jews over to a new German government to abide by German laws and German police? He can't do it. He's got to get the Jews out of there before they can be an independent Germany. And how does he do it? He can't get them into the United States. And because he can't get them into the United States, Canada won't allow them in, Australia won't allow them in, the South Americans won't allow them in. They look to the United States and they say, if the Americans don't want these Jews, why should we? So he has no choice in the end but to support an independent Israel because it's the only destination for the quarter million Jews. And only after those quarter million Jews are removed from Germany can he support an independent West German state? So he does it. You know, I'm not dis entirely discounting humanitarian concerns, but I think geopolitical ones are much more important for Truman in immediately recognizing the state of Israel. Well, we're still feeling the effects of it, but let me tell people who are listening that my guest is David Nassau, N-A-S-A-W, his latest book, The Last Million Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War, published by Penguin Press. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Um, well, when, so when the Jews are moved to Palestine, uh, aren't they um, displacing Palestinians? Mm -hmm. Isn't there another problem there? Are we creating new kinds of refugees? Exactly. Exactly. The only place, again, there, there's irony after irony, tragic irony after tragic irony in this. You know, as I did my research and wrote my, wrote my book, you know, not only is the only place for the surviving Jews, the only safe place for the surviving Jews, Germany, but the only place that will accept them is Israel. And Israel can only accept them because it has expelled or allowed to leave millions of Palestinians. So the 200,000 displaced persons who arrive in Israel are moved to agricultural settlements, into Kibbutzim. apartments, into houses, 
into kibbutzes that have been that have taken over land from the fleeing Palestinians. And and the Americans recognize this. Truman's ambassadors to the new state of Israel say over and over and over again, you've got to let the Palestinians back in. You can't you can't keep them out. Whether they fled for whatever reasons they fled, they want to come home and they were or should come home. And Ben Gurion and his government said no, absolutely not. And so looking back with the benefit of hindsight, was there any yeah. other solution available? Could it have played out differently? No. Well, yes. I, I mean, the only place the Jews could have gone was was Israel. That's that's clear because no place else on earth wanted them. Were there still DP camps in Germany? There were the displaced persons camps were emptied out. There were only the you know stragglers remained behind, and and some groups of Orthodox Jews who didn't recognize the state of Israel remained behind in in Germany until the middle fifties. Um, but the bulk of the displaced persons camps were emptied by 1951. Um, of the 250,000 Jews, displaced Jews, 150 to 180,000 of them emigrate to Israel, about 55,000 to the United States, about 15,000 to Canada, uh, a couple thousand to Australia, and, and some to, to Latin American countries. Um, Many of those who go to Israel, uh, many of the survivors who go to Israel, don't last there. They go sure. there because there's no place else on earth that wants them. They are Zionists of the heart, but their, their bodies and their minds are weary of war. And to go from World War II to the Middle East, which is a cauldron of war in 1948, 1949, is just too much for them. And after a year or two, they tried to, to relocate, and, and many do, to Canada, Australia, and, and the United States. Which is finally letting them in. We're pretty much out of time, although uh, I did want to ask you about whether you saw any parallels uh, between what happened then and the various refugee crises today, which uh, don't seem to be, have any solutions either. No, I, no they, they don't. And one of the reasons they don't is that what Roosevelt realizes right away is that the only is that these are global problems, problems of people displaced by civil wars or wars between states. They're global problems. No one nation can settle them. Only the nations together can settle them. And what President Trump has done is he has withdrawn American support for any efforts to deal with these global crises. So there has to be a renewal of an international commitment to the refugees, number one. Number two, we have to come up with an immigration policy and a refugee policy that's based on reality, fact, not falsehood, not fiction. And we have to leave it there, unfortunately. My great thanks to David Nassau, his book, The Last Million Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War, published by Penguin Press. Thank you so much for being such a great guest. My pleasure. Thank you for being a wonderful interviewer, as always.
Oh, thanks. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Deborah Freeman, who prepared today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you'll find links to all of our past shows on our show's website, LetItLocateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to send me your comments or want to say just to say hello, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off, I would just like to ask you one last time to step up and support Leonard Lopate at Large and this historic public radio station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. It's the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener-sponsored. If you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews that we bring you on the show, please go right now to give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help make sure that we can keep the show coming to you. Uh, we rely totally on our listener support. Uh, and one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at one time is to become a BAI buddy, listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on the show. As I mentioned at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large during today's show will receive a free copy of the book we've been discussing, The Last Million, Europe's Displaced Persons from World War to Cold War by my guest, David Nassau. Please be sure to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of Leonard Lobate at large. And a big thanks to everyone who has helped keeping us on the air with their generosity. One last time, the number to call, 516-620-3602, or go to give2wbai.org. We hope you can join us again tomorrow when Andre Gregory and a very special surprise guest will join us to discuss Andre's new book, This Is Not My Memoir. We'll see you then.